I'm Reverend Carla, and welcome to Spirituality Matters, a podcast that focuses on the intersection of spirituality and humanity. Now let's settle in and find that sacred space between here where I am and there where you are. Let us be reminded that the holy transcends our physical bodies, and our time together is just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Okay, let's get started. This episode, we answer some of my followers' questions. So as they say in social media, let's get into it. So the first question is simple, but complicated to answer for sure. The question is, do I believe in Jesus? Okay. Now, the first thing I thought of when I saw this question is the meme where it says, what do you do for a living? And the woman responds, I'm a minister. And the, re- and the person says, I don't believe in women ministers. And the woman minister responds, dude, I'm literally standing right in front of you. So I'm real. Okay. So this concept of believing in something, for instance, somebody might say, well, I don't believe in artificial Christmas trees. Well, right there is an artificial Christmas tree. So they do exist, but it has become something that we use to take a stand to, to reflect our values about something. And we're just supposed to know what that means. So this question is loaded. And I know that going into it, that there are several different ways that we could answer it. And I also know probably what the uh, commenter is asking me just based on their own profile. I know where this conversation is going, but anytime you just say, I don't believe in something like that, like, especially when it comes to a person, okay, maybe not necessarily a Christmas tree, but when you're talking about a person, it's dehumanizing. If you say something like, I don't believe I don't believe in you and in your profession. Like, I don't believe in women ministers. You're actually using words that undermine my validity as a human, not just my profession, but you're saying that somehow I'm less than because of who I am. It also disregards the reality when someone is just, literally there and standing in that role, your believing in it or not tends to put your value system over the reality that this person is ordained and happens to be a woman, but you're denying its existence or their importance by saying that you don't believe in it. It also invalidates that experience. I mean, I know for me, having gone to college and then to my seminary, it was a lot of work. And so I earned my ordination and someone saying that they don't believe in women ministers is saying that they don't believe in that experience or that it's not valid. It also can reinforce prejudices. So all this language, language, and I just, I've been talking about this in my sacred conversations with Rev Carla that I just held the other night, talking about what phobic beliefs are and the phobic language that we use is, is about dehumanizing and reinforcing these prejudices. And it also doesn't give a platform for understanding. It discourages understanding because I'm going to tell you, I don't believe in you. Well, where is the discourse? There's there's no place for dialogue at all. So you could say, I don't support it. But at the same time, where's your business in this? Where's your business if you're asking someone what they do for a living? Now I'm getting to the question, okay? 
what is the historical evidence of Jesus? Okay, so obviously in the Bible, Jesus is mentioned, uh, duh, but he's also mentioned in some Jewish and Roman historians, and of course, in several other writings. So I don't know if you've heard of the writer Josephus. This is a Jewish historian that references Jesus in his history of Judaism. Again, some people will say that this isn't necessarily accurate as well, but is he just reliant? Was he just relying on what the lore was at the time to create those stories of Jesus? It doesn't really matter. You can point to certain writings that say that historically Jesus existed, but that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. Even though I'll get very often, someone will plop down a comment and says, Jesus never existed. I don't believe in him. Okay. You can say based on who you're reading and then that scholarly evidence that Jesus didn't exist. Okay. That's cool on you. Um, but there were also some political references in the Roman realm where Jesus is referenced. And we also know that crucifixion was one of the, the weapons used, uh, forms of torture that was used by the Roman empire. So there's, there's several ways that you can approach like the physical actual existence of Jesus on whether or not you believe in, in him. But there's also some like peculiar archeological things. Like I have heard things like Jesus visited Buddha, which doesn't make sense because Jesus lived in first century BCE and uh, the Buddha was older than that. So I don't know necessarily that that, that lines up. Uh, or that Jesus was the Cleopatra's great grandson. Uh, I don't know about any of those things as well. That's where you can really take the story and spin it however however you want. But I can do this all day <laughs> because I know exactly what they're asking about this question, right? So let's just answer the question. Do I believe in Jesus? Of course I do. But the notion that I have to explain my faith is kind of outrageous, but that's how people view it. Like you have the right to ask me what I believe in Jesus. Now I just said, I believe in Jesus. I can answer that affirmative. What I don't answer is if I believe it in your lens, in your narrative, because especially if you come from my religious heritage of evangelical fundamentalist extremist Christianity, I no longer believe in that Jesus. I no longer believe in that view of Jesus. So my lens of Jesus is now through this inspiration and admiration. I'm, I admire the teachings without adhering to those, that rigid dogma found in some of Christianity. I focus on Jesus's teachings of love and compassion and forgiveness and the moral values that he taught, because I believe that that can resonate outside the confines of just one religion. I believe that his teachings transcend Christianity. I don't think he came here to start a religion. I think that these principles are more like moral values than they are saying you have to believe a certain way in order to be saved through this religion. I believe they were universal, ethical principles that we can use in our lives instead of having to align with beliefs that the Christian 
faith says you must believe in order to be a part of this exclusive Christian club. So my personal interpretation and spirituality is not open to debate. I don't need it to align with you so that you uh, agree or disagree. It's really, with all due respect, none of your business at that point. But what I do think that when you are expanding your conversation about Jesus to be inspired by his teachings, it opens up an interfaith dialogue and understanding that says, how are other people experiencing the divine? How do other people express this universal divine love? Does it just happen to be one path or can we look at all? And I say, yes, you can. Because again, what they're really asking is, do you believe in my version of Jesus? And I will tell you unequivocally, I do not, because I don't believe in a weaponized scripture that says that your religious beliefs take value over anybody else's. So I don't have to believe in your version of Jesus. Now, incidentally, I do say I don't believe in hell. That's an abstract theology. I'm not insulting a person. Maybe the, this devil that people say exists, I don't believe in that as well. I believe that's been weaponized as well. So that's a that's a way that you can say, I don't believe in that. And if you don't believe in artificial Christmas trees, that's okay too. Okay, on to the next question. Why do you seem angry and hurt at the church? Isn't it time to move on? Move on? I did. There's just power in story. Y'all, <laughs> it's happening a lot too. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, Christians finding my content right now. There is power in telling your story. There's empowerment. There's power to share it, but there's empowerment for you and inspiration for others in the power of story. When we share our stories, we allow others to see elements of themselves in it that can help them. They learn from our experiences they lay witness to our journey. That helps. And oftentimes our stories are, are hope and encouragement and motivation for others who are finding themselves on a similar pattern. You're just upset because it's laying bare some of the wounds that the religion that you're still paying homage to has caused people. I'm not telling you not to worship in the form of your of your Christian faith, but denying people their story or trying to twist the narrative to make it seem I'm something that I'm not. I can speak with passion. I can speak with anger. You're telling me I'm always angry when I have watched pastors scream at the top of their lungs and their face burn red with anger. And you're going to tell me, tell, name one time that I've done that. Name one time you can't, but you want to categorize me because it makes it safe for you if you can put me in a bucket and try to get the world to see that I'm just angry. Sexist much? Sexist just a little? I think so. But there is healing in storytelling. It provides an avenue for this emotional release that we need. It's cathartic for us. It's how we express our struggles. It's how we connect with each other. It's how we then go on a healing journey. I know I have done that where I'm stuck in a situation and an experience and I'm coming out of it. I'll, I'll repeat the story over and over again until I've turned to my path and I'm moving forward. I did that leaving church. What I'm telling now are, are stories that help people see my experience, but working through that for my own healing 
was, a, was, was something I did internally with my inner circle and it empowered me. That's how I found my path out. That's how I found that I was going to go to school and then become an ordained interfaith interspiritual minister. When I can turn pain into something that is power that catapults me forward, that's not anger. That's reclaiming elements of yourself, including my spirituality. It's transformative. And that's what this is. It's, it's a sacred act that taps into all of our spiritual essence, especially for the, for the kind of storytelling that we're doing here. And this ripple effect goes out into the world. You're just angry. You're just mad about it. That's why new people are coming here daily. And, it, and it, if it's not resonating with you, it's simply not for you. And I get that. I know it's not for everybody, but you can just keep moving on. I know my calling and I'm going to keep telling my story. Thanks anyway. <laughs> All right. What are your thoughts about how our country got into this mess? Well, I pulled up 14 pages of notes and I'm not, no, we're not going there. I keep these short and sweet so we can get to the point pretty easily on these Q and A's because I had written quite a bit about how modern American evangelical became this extremist sect of Christianity, cult-like, if not flat out a cult, which some people are calling it. But we can go back and start with the Civil War, where their angry, angry white Southern men were retaliating after losing the war by inflicting oppression on Black people because they had lost their most valuable commodity the enslaved black person. We could start at the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s that led to the Voting Right Act being passed. You know, we can look at the marriage of Christianity to politics in the 70s with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority that had nothing to do with abortion and everything to do with white supremacy. And if you don't believe me, look up this article uh, at politico.com, The Real Origins of the Religious Right. It's very interesting. It has always been about segregation. It has always been about white supremacy. And what this segregation serves is the patriarchy, where the white Christian man is at the top. Now, Ronald Reagan and Mitch McConnell became the perfect duo. And you put in that moral majority of Jerry Falwell and the family that was coming in at the same time. They knew back in the 80s, late 70s and the early 80s, they were putting this plan together. It was a 50-year plan that they hatched. That's what's coming to fruition right now. So when Donald Trump got up there and said that he wanted to issue a ban on Muslim countries, I knew, having come from that and having heard the homophobia, the transphobia, the xenophobia that came from the pulpit and sat in those pews, even in progressive churches, I knew he had won. People laughed at me. They said, no, he's a joke. No, I knew he had won because I knew the hatred that was hiding in those pews. And he was reaching out to those people who had been primed for years for a time such as this. He knew what he was doing. And that was part of the plan. Now, this is our time in history to push back, to make sure we're elevating the human condition. And we're not through with this yet, but we will survive it because patriarchy cannot survive. In its current form, extremist Christianity cannot survive because humanity has always been moving to a kinder, more compassionate existence. But it does that when people like you and I are working for the good of the whole. So 
It, I do believe it will get worse. I'm sorry to say that these laws are going to continue to be passed until we have this swell of people who are using their voices and this big wave is coming forward to change the system. The entire system needs to be changed. I'm not going to get too political on that right now. All right, last question. Why do so many churches with toxic theology hide behind the modern church theme? I didn't see this while actually in church, but now that I'm out of it, I can't believe I was duped all these years. Oh my, do I feel that? So non-denominational Christian churches is what we're really talking about here. And they emerged in the late... 20th century. And this rise was a response to, because people, this divisiveness that was happening inside denominational churches, whether you got the Baptist or you got the Christian or the disciple of Christ Christian church, or you got Methodist or Lutheran, on and on it goes. So these, they wanted to prioritize a direct relationship with Jesus and get away from the denominational stuff. But nine times out of 10, they, they were still tied to some denomination. And especially now, when you look at this modern evangelical church, they are tied to the Southern Baptist. They're tied to apostolic Pentecostal assembly of God. They're tied to that. They're just hiding that theology behind the pastor in jeans and the smokescreen and the rock band and the blacked out sanctuary. It's still there. Just ask them to officiate a same-sex marriage. Just ask them if they'll baptize your gay son or daughter. Just ask them if any of them are in leadership. Ask them how they choose their leaders. It's it's there, it's hiding in plain sight, but because you get caught up in the rock music and you think that they got this modern feel, that's not in a, at all. But the number one reason they did it was for money. Everyone has seen the statistics of people leaving church for the past 80 years, and they're trying to figure out a new way to keep people in the pews. Pure and simple, it's money. Marketing this modern feel has paid off because that's how the birth of the big mega churches. Look at Hillsong. I'm sure you know who Hillsong is, and you also know the controversies that are surrounding Hillsong. And a lot of churches modeled their entire pattern after the Hillsong model. You can walk into one and know immediately you're in a Hillsong church and you know what's going to happen after the opening number, opening song. But Brian Houston, the founder of Hillsong, just recently resigned because he's facing criticism on how he handled sexual abuse cases that involved his father, moral issues regarding himself, and mounting pressure to disclose more than what they have. So this is very, very concerning about this, and it's very important for us to understand. There are a load of questions. You can download my Welcoming versus Affirming Church for some questions to answer, to ask before you join a church. Uh, it is also important to expose it. If you've been involved in it and you want to help people, if they're looking for a church, I'm not anti-church, but I call out this kind of behavior because I've seen what it does with, with religious trauma causing all kinds of psychological and spiritual abuse to people. And spirituality should not be weaponized, but it absolutely is in this setting. Okay, you beautiful souls, thank you for listening. You can watch the uncut version of today's episode on my YouTube channel, Spirituality Matters with Rev Carla, and you can always connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can find at my website, revcarla.com, where you can find my latest about my upcoming courses, live teachings, and coming soon, Sundays with Rev. Carla. Stay tuned for that. Okay, beloveds, I'm honored to be in this space with you. Go in peace and be at peace. Go in love and may you be loved. Go and know that others are on this journey and you are not alone. You are seen and deeply and unconditionally loved. 
just the way you are. Blessings on your week, and I'll see you soon. Bye for now.